Hi, this is a podcast, the best bits of breakfasters for the weekend in December 12. It's a Thursday because if you've just downloaded this, tomorrow on the 13th is our final day of the year. We're doing it from the Corner Hotel. Yeah. So, or you've missed it. Sorry. Or you missed it. Sorry. Oh, thanks for coming. It was heaps of fun. Mm. Uh, if you don't know, Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, you will hear our interview with uh, Matthew Churchwood about the Great Melbourne Telescope. Uh, we had a bit of a chat about the L word and the re, the new one that's coming out, uh, and what it means to me in my personal life. Uh, and also, we chatted. What, what do you do Christmas morning? What's mm. your routine? Uh, we also spoke to Professor Jim Waterston about a new report about. Uh, Aussie kids just disappearing out of the education system. And Michael Harden for Food Interlude came in chatting the increase in non-alcoholic beverages. So stay off the booze Mm. this Christmas. Triple R. The Great Melbourne Telescope was first erected in 1869 at Melbourne Observatory and was once the largest fully steerable telescope in the world. Now, after more than a decade of dedicated effort, a team of volunteers has reassembled this astronomical treasure to its original form just in time for its 150th birthday. And to tell us about the telescope on display all summer at Science Works, we're joined by Senior Curator of History and Technology at Museums Victoria, Matthew Churchwood. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, listeners. Uh, can you fill us in on the tale of this telescope and why it's so special? Yeah, it's quite a remarkable scientific instrument and really part of um, marvellous Melbourne of the late 19th century. Um, its, its origins actually go back to the 1850s, um, sort of the gold rush era of Melbourne, um, when a group of eminent British astronomers decided that they really wanted to see a large reflector telescope commission to be put somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere um, to study what were um, nebula and galaxy galaxies, um, these sort of objects that, that are outside our Milky Way galaxy and they were sort of the furthest known objects in the universe at the time. So they were sort of really looking to push the boundaries of known um, astronomy and so on. Um, so they put together a proposal originally looking for funding from the British government. Um, it didn't come to fruition in the 1850s largely because the British government got involved in the Crimean War and they were spending all their money on armaments and so on. (laughs) Um, However, a decade later, um, the Victorian government um, were encouraged to take up the project and actually commissioned the telescope to have it built and and installed at the Melbourne Observatory to sort of, it was in a sense to make us part of the forefront of astronomy at that Mm. period. While everyone's looking at the ground, trying to get rich, astronomers looking in the sky. Yeah, yeah, and it was very much in the period when um, Victoria was setting up a lot of our major cultural and scientific institutions like the Melbourne University and the the museums and the art gallery and the public library and all part of that was commissioning um, a new observatory with some of the best instrumentation around. And then where did it go from 1869? So it spent the first 75 years of its life at Melbourne, um, doing the work it was originally proposed to for the first few decades. Then gradually, as the technology changed, it sort of become somewhat outdated and the Melbourne Observatory became involved in a lot of other research projects and the telescope sort of fell into disuse by the early 1900s. Um, An attempt was made to upgrade it at one stage in the 1890s and then we ran into a major recession and (laughs) there was no money forthcoming, so it sort of got quietly parked Um, And it was only occasionally used then for the next few decades. After the Second World War, um, the 
Mount Stromlo Observatory up near Canberra had sort of kicked off by then and they were looking around for instruments that they could use, so they approached the Victorian government and arranged for the telescope to be transferred up to Canberra. Yeah, and then what happened in Canberra? So it spent then another good um, 65 or so productive years in Canberra. It was rebuilt three times, um, modernised each time and upgraded and did some pretty cutting-edge research through the latter part of the 20th century, including research into the first investigations into dark matter in the 1990s. Oh, cool. And uh, it's pretty big, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's very large. It's, it stands about 10 metres tall, and the actual optical tube is 8.5 metres long and about 1.5 metres in diameter. So, How did it, how did it get from Melbourne to Canberra? Do you dismantle it and put it back together? or Yeah, they dismantled it, took it to pieces and yeah, right. um, packed it onto trucks and took it up there. Oh, gosh. Were there bushfires in camera? Yeah, so eventually... Um, um, after all that productive work in Canberra, a big bushfire um, broke out in January 2003 and came up over the mountain and literally destroyed all the telescopes at Mount Stromlo. Ah. And they decided not to rebuild because by then the, the Canberra was expanding and the, the suburb was sort of engroaching on the mountain and light pollution was becoming an issue. Um, so the telescopes are sort of just <laughs> left, left to their their own devices out in the elements. Um, the fire was so sort of hot, the, um, the whole aluminium dome over the telescope melted and dripped molten aluminium onto the telescope. Right. Um, and it, has a, it had a massive um, Pyrex glass mirror, heat-proof glass, you know, effectively, um, that shattered um, from the heat of the fire. Um, and, and all the modern electronics and stuff that have been put onto it all melted and <laughs> fused into a, wow. a useless mess. So tell us about the process of reassembling it, it's taking over 10 years. Yeah, so first of all, we went to Canberra and um, arranged to recover the remaining parts of the telescope. So because of all the upgrades over the years, there was only about five major components um, of the telescope that were still part of the instrument itself but they were the main structural elements of the backbone of the telescope and they'd been sitting out there in the elements since the bushfire for several years quietly rusting away so why would you recover it and not just get new ones uh, new like sorry? Well, why would you like why would you recover the telescope like go to the effort to recover it and not just build right. a new one from scratch I yeah. Suppose. yeah yeah well i guess the main reason was because of its history and its significance yeah right um and fortunately, um, over the decades, as they did the upgrades in Canberra, um, the Melbourne Museum had been interested, obviously, in the history of the telescope. And we have a number of instruments and stuff that came from the old observatory, Melbourne Observatory. Yeah. So it's an area we've always been interested in. And we'd gone and convinced Canberra to give us a whole lot of parts that had been taken off the telescope over the decades as it was upgraded. Oh, so cool. about when the bushfire happened, about a third of the telescope was sort of in pieces on pallets and crates and stuff in one of our collection stores um, and that sort of raised the interest of um, a, a group of astronomers called the Astronomical Society of Victoria who had also been involved in they've continued to use the Melbourne Observatory regularly and they do regular public viewings there with other historic telescopes so they were very passionate about the history of the site and sort of hatched this grand plan oh wouldn't it be fantastic if we could go and recover all yeah, these bits be, and yeah. rebuild this amazing instrument from the 1860s. So what was it What was it like this 10 years? Would you gather every week for a couple of hours or, you know, was it touch and go whether you would make it for the anniversary? Yeah, well, it's a 
it's a sort of a part-time project and it's it's largely run with the the input of volunteers um so myself and a few other colleagues at the museum effectively manage the project and provide the oversight and most of the grunt work's done by these fantastic volunteers and They've put in almost 30,000 hours to date, we oh estimate. So amazing effort over the last I've, decade. I've, I've um, put together a cabinet from Ikea and it was a nightmare. <laughs> what, was, what was this like? Yeah, well, one of the issues was um, because of the bushfires and stuff, all the original documentation and things of the telescope had been lost over the years. So there was no <laughs> drawings <Manual>. or blueprints <laughs> or anything left, no manuals. Um, so the first step was to actually dismantle all the bits we had, pull everything out, um, clean everything down and de-rust a lot of the parts with dozens and dozens of cans of WD-40, um, pull all the rusty bits apart, um, so identify and catalogue what we had, um, and then we started the, the, the long, slow process of documenting everything and, and the volunteers started measuring and creating drawings of the bits we had and then they had to generate drawings of all the bits that were missing. Goodness, um, and you would have looked through it, I suppose. What's it like to look through? This uh, well, we haven't we haven't yet got so where we're at now is this is the first time we've actually structurally got it back together in its original form. Um, so it's starting to look like the original telescope, uh, but we're yet to actually look. You haven't through put it your eyes in there yet. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, no, I have actually looked through the tube, but there's no optics in place oh, yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we're just, just starting. Imagination. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, we're just starting the process now of the next phase of the restoration will be commissioning some new mirrors for the telescope and, and we're having one of our volunteers is making new eyepieces. And so in about three years' time, they'll be installed and then we'll start testing and finally... In about five years' time, we're estimating, it should hopefully be ready to go back to its original yeah. home at the observatory. Oh now, the, the, the Melbourne Observatory is a bit of a hidden treasure in the Botanic Gardens. It is, yeah. It just sits um, opposite the shrine and it's sort of... A lot of people know it from the cafe there, sort of at the entry as you go into the observatory. Um, but hopefully with the telescope, the big telescope back there, it'll um, it'll really create a lot more interest in mm. the And what are you going to do with the roof? The, the, um, so the... Um, the project has sort of been a three-way partnership with the Royal Botanic Gardens, who now manage the observatory site, and the Astronomical Society of Victoria and the Museums Victoria. And the garden side of things is they're taking on board actually restoring the original building the telescope was in. Um, because of its size, this huge big optical tube, it was impractical in the 1860s to build a conventional um, observatory dome over the telescope. So instead they built a long, thin building with a roll a roll off roof effectively so this sort of long thin gabled roof would roll off on rollers and the telescope would rise up out of the bowels of the building and sort of wow. point to the sky so that building's still there it had all also been sort of adapted and modified over the decades and that's gradually being restored by the gardens and they've just got the roof reactivated in the last month or so. Okay. Um, so they can actually roll it off and start to get things functioning. All right. So will the public be able to, is the idea, look through the telescope? Yeah, so the, the idea is that the public will, the telescope will be made available for public viewing. Yeah, right. Um, and as such, it'll be the largest telescope effectively regularly available for public viewing in the world. Oh, cool. Um, and it's an interesting part of the history of the telescope that right from the very early years... Um, there were always um, public sessions at the observatory and they allowed visitors in several nights a month um, to actually look through the telescope. And it was, you know, in the 19th century, it was a major tourist attraction in Melbourne to go down and look through the giant telescope. Yeah. Ah. And in the meantime, you can check it out at ScienceWorks. 
Yeah, so the, the thrilling thing is we've we've now um, moved the restoration to our engineering workshop at ScienceWorks and uh, installed a lovely new viewing bay so the public can come in over the summer and actually see the work underway there. Cool. So we don't have to wait 150 years? You're in all... <laughs> no, do not. Okay. Uh, that's fascinating. You can check out the great Melbourne telescope at ScienceWorks uh, for the next little while and over summer. And uh, we've been speaking with Matthew Churchwood, Senior Curator of History and Technology at Museums Victoria. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. At least 50,000 young Australians have disappeared from the education system nationwide, according to a new report from the University of Melbourne. Those who disappear, the Australian education problem nobody wants to talk about, sheds light on the issue of young people of compulsory school age across the country who are not participating in an education program of any type. And to tell us about it, we're joined by its co-author, Dean of Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne, Professor Jim Waterson. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, this report describes a very serious education problem, and it's not just kids wagging from time to time, is it? No, that's right. So uh, the way education departments talk about it is that kids are in, uh, disengaged. And so disengaged could mean just not um, invested in their learning, or they might be school refusers. But what's caught up in that term is a whole bunch of young people who no longer are in school. And there's lots of reasons for that, but um, we don't really talk about it. So I prefer to talk about these young people as detached so that we don't confuse them by what is, norm- well, not normal school practice, but the way we sort of talk about students who we need to engage further. So this is a, this is a major problem, and 50,000, I think, is a conservative estimate around Australia of young people from very early ages. You know, um, uh, we've heard since the report's been delivered from some people contacting us and, uh, and through social media of uh, new life experiences where some of those ch- children have detached well before the, you know, 10 years of age. Mm. And there's some incentive for this data not to be out there or acknowledged, isn't there? I'm not sure there's incentive, but but there's certainly... Uh, sorry, I'm not sure that there is incentive, but um, there's certainly an issue that um, it's a long-term problem. It's, uh, it's one that's known about within departments. But it, uh, in the short-term cycle of elections that we have, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's a it's a kind of an issue that people want to promote uh, in t- in talking about some of the major deficiencies that we have in yeah. you know, our education and system. To, just to quote from your report, there's little incentive for mainstream schools in today's narrow and competitive education environment to attempt to take in and rehabilitate. So even schools themselves. Well, this is a really big issue because the children that are, or the young people that have um, detached from school usually have a whole lot of complex issues and perhaps haven't been achieving at the level that um, schools uh, are looking for in terms of boosting their ATAR or their um, NAPLAN scores or PISA scores, as we've just seen last week. So um, if you take those children back into school, uh, if you reattach them, then um, there's probably some disincentive from a, from a sort of a standard point of view. Now, that's not the case in lots of schools. There are some wonderful principals and, uh, and teachers out there that are helping to reattach young people. And there are many of the stories that we've heard since the report's been released. But, yeah, there are lots of schools um, who probably talked about the school down the road being a better fit. What's some of the major reasons for the detachment? So there's a whole lot of complex reasons, but um, a lot of it is um, dysfunctional behaviour. There's, there's a mainstream schools that are really focused on um, uh, achievement and some young people have uh, issues um, with that with that process, so mainstream schools don 't fit all young people, and so um, there 's uh, disability there 's a whole lot of um, sexual orientation issues for older uh, young people 
and and uh, in the report we list um, you know probably a half a page of, of reasons why. But I think what's been reinforced since we've uh, released the report and hearing the stories from people is that uh, every case is different, and so uh, it's not always the, the the young people who haven't attained literacy and numeracy. There are people who are, are really uh, highly uh, intelligent and skilled uh, that have found school um, bullying and issues like that that have found it impossible to remain in the environment, and so. The fact that they can just disappear and we don't uh, know where they go to or who they are uh, is a real issue in Australia. And so what I'm advocating is that we have a national student identifier, a, a, a number that we attach to people so that when they move on, we can um, manage them through data and uh, be able to uh, exchange data with uh, other states so that we, if, if they leave Victoria and go to Western Australia, we can find out where they are and make sure that they reattach. And so when kids detach and disappear, what are, what's the cost to that, not only to themselves but maybe even to the, to the country and society? So in the report we, we quote some research uh, that's been done by Victoria University which says it's about $650,000 or whatever, but the cost is, is way more than that, as, as you um, inferred in your question. Uh, young people who don't finish Year 12 we know have uh, a whole lot of health outcomes uh, and unsavoury health outcomes, I guess, but also um, uh, their, their employment capacity over their life is less. They, um, and there are lots of issues that we know from a population-based study uh, that, that, are, that are going to be far more challenging. So we, we need every young person to be successfully in school and achieving uh, certainly to uh, year 12 and then hopefully with pathways after that. But once they do detach, uh, the evidence is that it's very difficult for them to reattach and so um, juvenile justice and health issues and, uh, uh, and and all of the things that come with that. And so you would think in a, in a country like Australia, every young person would, would um, be entitled to the statutory right that they have to be in a school. Mm. And not only to be in a school, but to be successful and to be uh, managed as an individual and focused on uh, the, those individual needs. But um, as we're finding, that's, that's certainly not the case for everyone. Is there anything that schools <clears throat> are doing to um, to keep their students, or like this, you know, the schools that are, that do have a good track record? Sure. Is there anything that they do differently? Well, there are about nine hundred alternative or flexi schools across Australia, which are which are, are not mainstream schools. Some of them are education departments. Some of them are uh, independent, uh, and those schools really focus on. Um, catering to young, young people with complex needs, whatever those needs are, and they really focus on the whole person, uh, looking at health and well-being in addition to uh, academic progress. And so uh, I guess part of the recommendations in the report do talk about trying to find opportunities and, um, and schools that can really um, deal with some of those issues that have prevented them from being in mainstream schools. So having this um, students with a, with a number, would that help them, you know, if they do get detached to, to, you know, get them into one of these schools if that's, if that's what they need? So it's all about knowing where these, where these young people are. And so there's a, there's a good example of a case study in the report we talk about, Jack, who uh, left home at 10 years of age and uh, left his school. Nobody found him until he was 16 and he walked into another school in Queensland. 
And so he'd been on ice. He'd, he hadn't lived at home. His parents hadn't reported him missing. It sounds um, like a fantasy story. Mm. And, and, it's, and, you know, it's, it's a real-life example, and we've had plenty of other examples since then. What we needed was for somebody, a health agency or a juvenile justice or whatever, that Jack would have come into contact with to be able to identify him and then, um, and then work with him um, through the right agencies to get him back into, a, into an education program. But more importantly, get him back into um, some, some uh, proper housing and to be able to look after him. And, and so uh, Jack's not isolated, unfortunately. Is there anything that mainstream schools can do to try and identify high-risk uh, students earlier on? I mean, I know two young people who have dropped out of school who are 15 because they continue to kind of get kicked out of mainstream sure. schools. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, absolutely. And and can I just say again, there are lots of fantastic mainstream schools that are doing uh, wonderful things. And so uh, this is not necessarily a problem of individual schools, but certainly in some schools it is it's difficult and uh, for young people to um, to to establish themselves and to uh, work on passions and interests of their own when when it's a kind of a a one size fits all. So what we really do need is schools to personalise their focus on young people and work on the individual issues that are preventing them um, achieving but also preventing them staying connected with that mainstream school. So uh, the, early, the, the early signs are clearly that disengagement that, that, uh, that starts with um, young people not being um, regular attenders and certainly um, finding it difficult to cope within that environment. And lots of welfare um, services are provided, in, certainly in Victorian schools, that, that certainly address those issues. But we really do need to um, make sure that we focus on individuals, work with their parents, work with um, other caregivers and to, to build a wraparound service for, for young people. And, and it happens, it just doesn't happen enough. And you've been involved in the education sector for over 35 years. You're a teacher, principal and academia. What, is, what a change have you... What, can you nominate a change that you've observed that's maybe contributed to this explosion of a problem? Well, it's, it's it's not the only change, but certainly there's been a much bigger focus on um, high stakes testing, and and schools uh, have in the last thirteen years really had to respond to um, being judged by their NAPLAN results, or or um, as again as I said before, the PISA results last week, which everyone's shocked about, and so this focus on um, academic achievement, which is necessary. Um, become such a high priority that um, the individual day-to-day issues of young people with anxiety and um, and a whole lot of mental health issues, but not just mental health issues, um, dysfunctional homes and, and issues outside of the school. Um, if the school's not the universal um, platform that we can focus on the needs of everyone and identify that what those complex issues are, then I don't know where else we can do that in society. So we really do need to get back to making sure that every young person uh, is known by their name and face and not just part of a data system uh, and really uh, find the best possible um, uh, school or environment for them to be in to be able to prosper. And uh, again, it works for most people in Australia. It just doesn't work for everyone. And 50,000 people uh, is, a, is a huge number and hard to believe, quite frankly. And uh, um, it's, it's certainly um, a, a number that we would like to reduce, but it's going to take all governments to work together and to really uh, establish this as a priority above and beyond that short-term electoral cycle. Mm. Uh, the report is called Those Who Disappear, the Australian Education Problem Nobody Wants to Talk About, and we've been speaking with its co-author, Professor Jim Waterston. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. Triple R. I think during the holidays, one of the best things you can do is uh, watch holiday Christmas themed romantic comedies. Oh, yeah. Yes. 
And binge watch TV series. Um, I agree. Wholeheartedly. Yes, wholeheartedly oh. agree. Um, <clears throat> one, for example, one binge, something you could binge on. I don't know if I would actually get around to doing this, but the L Word has um, relaunched and it's it's the L Word um, Q something. There's something. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can't remember oh, what yeah. it's then called. I've what it's called as well, but it's like Generation when, Q. Because I think they, when the Beverly Hills relaunched, um, oh, was that yeah, yeah, that was what ninety. It was called like nine hundred two one zero Gen Second yeah. Generation or something yeah. like that as well. And even Veronica Mars has had a relaunch as well, and apparently that was one of the big instigators for getting the oh. L word back on back. On this on the screens, uh, the, a lot of the ca- the actors from the old word have been trying to get it back. Yeah, for, for like years. Yeah, I, I'm sure they'd want to um, do it again just to get th- things right. <laughs> like there's a there's a few plot lines and stuff. It, you go back and watch it. You go, oh no, <laughs> this at, day at, as with any. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. As just, with any, yeah. It's quite a few storylines in it that do not date well at all. At all, especially in that community. Yeah. Um, Generation Q. There you go. Uh, I was right. Generation Q. Anyway, so the first L word, I was very late in watching the original one. Like it was a very popular show. Mm. It's um, on SBS. It was on SBS, yeah. Um, and uh, like Queer as Folk was on around the same time. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, um, I there was one... Uh, Christmas, just after you know that time between Christmas and New Year's, and I was uh, went to Kmart to buy a, a book and just couldn't find a book and was like, look, this is so long ago, you know, when DVDs were still around, and I was going <laughs> looking at all the DVDs, and I and I saw the L word. It was like twenty bucks, and I went, you know, it was like season one of the L word. I'm like, I've heard that's a good show. I'm mm-hmm. like, I think I'll just buy that. Oh, this, this is a very dated story, isn't it? Isn't I love it. it. Isn't it? Um, and then, so I bought it. And mind you, this is I'm I haven't come out at this stage. Oh, really? Yeah. This is when I'm still. Oh, I'm totally straight. What? <laughs> Don't. What are you talking about? Yeah, whatever. I'm straight. Um, and then I so I bought this DVD, and even like when the, I took it the checkout, the um, the lady at the checkout, the woman at the checkout was being. On reflection, quite flirty. <laughs> yeah. Not that I knew it at the time. She's like, oh, this is, yeah, this is a really great show. Have you seen this before? And, like, very chatty. I was like, now looking back, it's like, oh, I'm buying the L word and I look like I do. Like, I've, like why wouldn't <laughs> you, you know. Anyway, I bought it and then I uh, I took it home and um, I just I started watching it. And I think I watched the whole season in the next 24-hour p- period, mm. just binged it totally and was <laughs> like I, it just had the right amount of drama and also a bit of an awakening. <laughs> like it was Confronting so, 24 hours. Yeah. It was so, like I look back on it now and just go, oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went, this is like just before New Year's Eve, and so I'd binge watched it all. And I get to, I went to a friend's place for a New Year's Eve party, and was there quite early. And they were like, my friend goes, "How are you, Jess?" And I'm like, "I'm all right." I said, "I've just watched um, the entire first season of The L Word, and um, I, I," and she went, "And you think you might be gay?" And I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, I really think so. <laughs> anyway, the L word. Um, I love you so much. <laughs> was quite yeah, quite the awakening. I I mean, obviously, I did a lot of growing in that in that that couple of days. Um, I was. Do you know what I was actually going? I was at Kmart. Um, oh, because I was going. I was rereading all the um, John Marston Tomorrow When the War Began series. Yeah, and I was just. I went in to get the next, the next book in the series, and it wasn't then. I went. Oh well, I'll get the L word. And oh right, what a chat. What a. <laughs> What oh, a chapter in my life. Life would have spun on its head. Oh, you know, I binge watched the L Word as well. I didn't have it was like a slightly different situation, obviously. Well, you're not gay, so well, it's no, probably have yeah. a different. Yeah, well, that's why I'm like, I don't know if there's any point Daniel, in me talking about binge Daniel, watching the L Word. But have if you, you binge... watched the L Word and come out as a lesbian, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. I, I don't. I don't know how old I was when it was. I think I may have still been living at home, or it's, oh, it's, you would have watched it when I was on TV. Yeah, yeah. Oh, did you? Mm. Mm. But it was still, you know, like it's all... It's very raunchy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very raunchy, isn't it? I think it was more just a... I think it just opened up my eyes. My friend owned it on DVD and I moved in with her and she was out all the time because she was playing in a band and I was living in Sydney and a bit sad and a lot. Like, not sad, but, like, I just oh, had yeah. limited things to do. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and it, I, was, I was just coming home. I was, just, I was in a long-distance relationship as well. There was a few things that were yeah. like I was coming home and I wasn't going out as much. Mm. And she was like, yeah, you should watch season one to ten of The L Word or whatever it was. See, it's easy to on you get involved and yeah. know the characters. And what I became to? really emotionally attached to yeah. all the characters in a really kind of deep, I think, intense way. Because in, in the reboot of that, and you mentioned 90210 getting rebooted and it flooded back the memories of Tori Spelling's books. Yes, that's right. Mm. What books? She's written a ton of books. So many books. One of them's called uh, Storytelling, like, but, but how spelling Tori. Uh, isn't it perfect? Oh, my. Oh, like. Storytelling instead of Tori Spelling. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> spelling it like it is. Uncharted Territory. <laughs> she should have been a comedian. Oh, no. Are they Every all year memoirs? Yeah, I think so. They, how they, many memoirs can she have? I, I, it depends how many punches got in her. There's so many. It Keep really, going. It opened my re- celebratory. Oh my gosh! Mm. I really, I'm really. It's there's one called Mummy Wood too. She goes yeah. a bit off brand there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, really, I found it quite inspiring. Wow! I, I didn't know there was so much tutorial spelling. But yeah, so you. You've are you already fully immersed in? Oh yeah, in, what's happening now in the generation, new generation? I haven't, I haven't started watching it. I did at one stage. I went back and uh, watched like an old episode of the L Word and went, oh, yeah, I've grown up a bit now. Yeah, I don't need to. Oh, done that now. It's interesting how context <laughs> changes a program. I started watching months ago. Which are a, a documentary on uh, Canopy, the streaming service that you can access through your library. Yes, that's Canopy with a K. Yes, uh, and it's called Crazy Horse, and it's behind the scenes of uh, the burlesque venue, um, oh. in, which is the, where the cool. It's it's you know there's Moulin Rouge and Crazy Horse, and, and Crazy Horse is the cool one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, so it's behind the scenes, and you it, they're building up a new show, and you it's all at the rehearsals. And I was watching it with Jessie and it was not a problem. Oh, because uh, she loves Berlin. Yeah, she loves yeah, all that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. And um, But then we, we, you know, we press pause on it and return to it, you know, six months 
or seven months later, and she's now very, very pregnant, and the context has changed. Oh, wow. Because now, well, now it's Daniel sitting on the couch watching. <laughs> Burley. Triple. Ah. Christmas is coming up. Sure is. Uh, it's our last week. Um, don't forget to come to the Corner Hotel on Friday, especially if you're up at this time and listening. What a great time to pop in. Mm. Oh, Set your alarm heart like an hour earlier. What fun. That's exciting. It is. And then you just get up and then pop down, get ready for work, pop down to the corner, have a have a free coffee and a pastry. Yep. And then, and then have a wave, yeah. wave at us. And it's at Hit the, the road for work. And at the Vital Bits OB, it was, you know, the queue for the coffees as the morning went on. You know, oh, you, just you got, got, oh yeah. Yeah. I see. You know, get, get in yeah. early. Get in early for your free coffee. Yeah. Bring your keep cup and mm. away you go. There you go. Happy days. Good advice. Thank you. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, Christmas is coming up. I was just thinking about because it's so early in the morning and this would be – Probably about the time that I'd be getting up on Christmas morning. Yeah. Would you, would you be an early When rise? I was a kid? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. As early as possible. In C- fact, I remember, I don't know if it was Christmas or an Easter, but I do remember getting up. Too early? Yeah. Before it probably Santa would have came. been, not before, but I reckon it was 3 a.m. <laughs> That, that oh, early yeah, and early. creeping into my parents' room and them just going, no. <laughs> Santa uh, hasn't been yeah, yet. Not yet. But once you've seen... The presents, like I remember sneaking and seeing that Santa had arrived and seeing the presents. And once I'd seen that he'd arrived, then go and ask my parents and they said, no, I can't open the presents yet. It, what did they expect me to do? Mm. Like a child can't go back go to back sleep to after bed. that. No, there was. Yeah. Did you open up your presents? At- no, I just lay in bed. Oh, yeah. Are you allowed to lock kids in their room or is that legal? <laughs> <laughs> probably legal now. Yeah. I mean, no. It's probably not recommended. It's not recommended, but sure. Like, if, if they don't realise they've been locked in. Let's Google it. Lock <laughs> kids in room. <laughs> we... <laughs> uh, oh, Daniel, we've had some reports. <laughs> um, we'd have to... Uh, I remember... I don't know if this is, like, every year, but I distinctly remember at least one year where mum and dad said you're only allowed to open one present bef- <gasps> before um, before going to mass. <gasps> Sucked in. Did you have to do mass on, on the Christmas day? Yeah, yeah, oh, Christmas morning. Oh, we did Christmas like, Eve. I wish we – sometimes we did Christmas Eve and it was so much more fun. So much more fun. It was like this is – or even midnight mass. Oh, your midnight mass. Oh, like that's cool. You go to midnight mass and then hit the pub. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, I so there was, but there was one oh, just like like mass didn't go on for long enough as it was, mm. and where you had to sit there and knowing that you had all your presents to go oh. home to, like you, you could be at home playing with them right Torture. then. Yeah. So sorry, you would you would open a present then go to mass. Yeah, one yeah, present. right. Just okay. one present, and you couldn't. And what do you, what do you think about that? The one present. Like, just to keep you tied over. I think so. I think it's like, okay, we'll allow this. Yeah. yeah. But you're going to have to wait. And for then the rest do, you, of them. do they get to elect which present you're I allowed to remember, open? I can't remember. But I, yeah, because I can't remember. I would have obviously picked something big or something like that. But I, I really can't. I just remember that rule. And also, um, I remember being at Mass and looking around and going, 
you got a new Billabong t-shirt for right. Christmas. <gasps> totally, yeah. but then you outfits. got a new pair of shorts. You got a new dress because <laughs> mm. you know you'd go to this, go to mass every week, see, see the same people, the same clothes everywhere. I'm like, nope, there's your new Sunday best clothes. <laughs> That's a nice shirt, nice and ironed, isn't it? What was it like at the birdhouse? Uh, well, I would sleep with. My like Santa's sack, not his sack, but the, my stocking. Yeah, under, yeah. Under my head, like I'd like tie it around my neck. <laughs> Are you serious? Because <laughs> you wanted to. Because you wanted know, to catch I, Santa. I wanted to bust him. Yeah, and I never caught and him. You never caught him. Never, not once. How did he get oh, that? I have no wow. idea. Maybe I was sedated. That is so intense that you would do that. Yeah, to- I was because I always thought I, f- I felt oh, there's no way Santa's gonna. Get around this. Yeah. Like, there's no, this is foolproof. You've truly always been the same person, haven't you? (laughs) Uh, But yeah, there was no, there was never any things. We've always done a Kris Kringle. um, uh, Well, but the Santa, you know, I remember one morning, because Santa would give you things and then your parents would give you things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there was one morning where we got up very early, we were invited outside, there was a trampoline. As well. Oh, really? Oh. Just, that was a fun morning. Oh, I, yeah. We weren't allowed trampolines. <laughs> really? Uh, when all, they were on Is that why Kevin's you, list what, of things. Not, that not we enough were, space at the farm? No, yeah, no. <laughs> They're on Kevin's list of things that were too they're too dangerous. Yeah. Oh, is that the... Your children can play in a hay barn unattended that's three stories high. This explains so much about you, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> no trampolines. No, we weren't allowed trampolines. You'd oh. even go when we're going to friends' houses to have a trampoline. Don't go on it. Oh, yeah. Trampoline was so. <laughs> it was more than just a trampoline, though, wasn't it? Yeah. Like you could put oh, it up right. on its side, soccer net. That's right. You could practice put, catching on it. Yeah. Okay. And then you could hold, you know, and then hold on to the side and then flip it down. That yes. was fun. Yes. And what else could you do? Stop crying, Sarah. And. <laughs> Then um oh and then get the hose underneath and oh, get a summer. bar of soap. Yeah, slip and slide. Yeah, that was dangerous. That was very dangerous. <laughs> that was so dangerous. This was, I think we got it just before the phase where they introduced padding. Yes, same. Oh yes. <laughs> How many times did you get your skin caught in the yeah. in the spring? Oh. I just don't know. Like even getting and you get an electric shock every time you got on mm. or off. It, it was the trepidation of the electric shock, like yeah. an unused trampoline. <laughs> And then you would approach it cautiously. <laughs> and then once the friction starts going, you're, you're guaranteed to be electrocuted. So good. Double yeah, bouncing your oh. brother. Oh, you didn't have one. No, no. I got – I, well, I was I was younger than everyone else. So you I, got double double bounced. Bounced. I got double bounced. I remember being ashamed going to friends' houses because I didn't have uh, one to practice on. I could never do tricks. So people would be doing flips and doing – you jump on your bum and stand up. And mm. I just did, never got the hours in to be able to do the impressive yeah. tricks. I mean, once again, this explains so much. <laughs> it was so nerve-wracking. I, I found the trampoline so exciting and yeah. so nerve-wracking that it affected my ability to watch trampolining in the Olympics. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why? You thought things were going to go wrong all yeah, the time. Yeah, because I'm like, they're going up so high. Yeah. Why aren't they tumbling off and knackering themselves? <laughs> like I <laughs> did, you, did you ever... Was there any particular thing um, that you liked to do? On the, like, what was your trick? What was your go-to trick? Uh, I, I couldn't somersault or anything like that. I think I've managed to somersault when I was quite young. I couldn't do it now. Yeah. I think in the in the middle of summer, it, w- it became more about a place to sunbathe. 
Ja. Just for the Mine was, I used to love, um, you'd start, you'd bounce, start going on your bum, come back up. Go on your bum, oh, come back yeah. up. And then, then you go on your back and then flip over, go on your stomach and then land. Yeah, I can't believe you'd flip over. Fun. Oh, it was so much fun. Mm. Well, was my you know, favourite thing to do. So flipping over, just falling. Is, is that what you mean? Oh, yeah, no, no, oh, not doing like a forward not, not flip. Not doing a, no, you go, a roll flip. You go, so you bounce and then you go on your back. Yeah. And then don't go on your feet. You go on your back and then flip, flip over and then onto your stomach. On your tummy. Oh, yeah. I thought mm. you meant doing a somersault kind of <laughs> And then situation. I, I think also moving to different points on the, on the trampoline. I feel like this is just kind of like you're being assholes <laughs> now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> What are you? What, anything you miss? You liked about trampolines? No, I don't want to talk about trampolines. <laughs> Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Before meeting us at the OB on Friday, uh, where Michael will be, he's here with us now for the final food interlude of the year. G'day, Michael. Hi, how are you going? Really swell. That's good. Uh, yeah, and I'm very. I'm looking forward to. Um, I don't know. I'm. I'm worried about because the kitchen will be open at, at the corner. Uh, do people get nervous when you're just going in as a I punter? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. It's the, you know, you have to get your petty little you know power whenever you can. So I'll be there with my pencil sharpener and my notebook, judging our pastries, <laughs> judging, judging everything. Also, actually, you can be judging Dono, our um, our sports guy. Oh has my made, goodness, yeah, he's made some delicious weird fudge thing, which he sent me a photo of last night. Which I think that we should good, get you to. Good rev- lord, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, good, good lord. I'm, or? I'm showing Michael a photo of it right now. Just look terrifyingly awesome, but um, yeah. we'll get you to review that live. Yeah, I will. Please. So what have you cast your eye over this week? Uh, well, I thought that, you know, seeing that we're in the season and, uh, you know, that everybody's talking about booze and everything, but it's sort of like one of the big trends that I've seen this year is the move towards no and low alcohol drinks in restaurants and bars. It's sort of suddenly become a thing. Um, you know, it's always been in the past, but in the past it's always been, you know, you can maybe get a fruit juice and a lemon, lime and bitters yeah. or something or a soda water and then that was that's the end of that. But um, there's a, there's been an overall trend towards people drinking less and restaurants and bars are responding to it. So, because, you know, I was just looking at some figures. They said the, the figures of where... Um, drinking in Australia 10 litres of pure alcohol per person for everybody 15 years and over, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which is the lowest figure um, since the 19, early 1960s. Is that a year? Yeah, 10, 10, 10 litres each. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so including from everybody 15 and over. Okay. So, yeah. And what was it 10 years ago? It was sort of up around 11. Okay. And, um, but so we've fallen in the rankings. France is still ahead. But it's at 12 litres. Russia is up there with 11.7. I can't so, believe how close we are to Russia. Yeah, yeah. No, we're pretty... We're, pretty, we're, we're, we're among drinkers. the heaviest. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. So, one of the tropes uh, that I was on of, you know, restaurants make their profits from selling drinks. That's yes. one thing you learn yeah. growing up. Is that... You know, is that playing out, and that's why they're they're adapting as well? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's sort of like, and I think that one of the things also that that has like because people are looking for this stuff, but they've also been responding to it, is that there is profit to be made in non-alcohol drinks as well, mm. because a lot of them are being made in house and that sort of stuff. So, you know, the whole thing—it's all part of a sort of a, a trend towards you know that all this whole health and wellness in drinking anyway, because all these you know low and no, it's low carbs and less sugar and mid strength, and there's also a sort of a less waste 
heritage sort of part of it as well. So, um, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, you know it's kind of gone mainstream when, you know, the marketing people get their grubby little paws all over it. And it's sort of like, you know, I saw a headline the other day, sober is the new sexy. Oh, it's yeah. Like, you know, it's so bad. Yes. So bad. You know, it's just, it makes you want to drink. Uh. It really does. So, um, you know, but there's always that, there's also this part sort of, you know, there's these, all these dry July stuff and, you know, True. sort of people mm. going and sort of exercise regimes where people sort of go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do the exercise. I'm going to be off the booze for all of these sort of weeks. So there's all these different ways. And there's also, they're saying that the other thing that's affecting it is social media in the fact that there are cameras everywhere and you being really drunk and making a goose of yourself is very likely for you to, for, to end up on social media. And so people are less interested in drinking because of what could be, you know, what could be shown on social media and how it could affect future prospects, whatever. So there's sort of all these things towards oh, it. Sad. So it's, yeah, exactly. Mm, so a it, bad reason to stop. I know, but, you know, I think back and I think, thank God. Of course. I, mean, I, was, I was out of that yeah, era, you know. So, because oh. it is the, the, the one that the, the, the group that's drinking less than everybody else is, is the 24 to 29-year-old people. Mm. They're sort of like, and it's gone down by about a third the amount they're drinking. But the good thing about it, the upside of it is that it's, um, all this non-alcohol and low-alcohol stuff is being taken seriously. So there's some really, really, really delicious things being made around the traps. So what are some good of, things? When I think of these non-alcohol drinks, I think of really sweet, intense, yeah, this is this over-the-top kind of fruity things. Yeah, well, that's how it used to be. It's sort mm. of like you know there was sort of it's sort of a lot of this stuff started in high-end restaurants with degustation menus like you know Attica and and, and Noma in, and they had like juice menus. So everything would be a different juice, and if you tried to get through you know fourteen courses with a juice with each one, you'd not only be in a sugar coma by the end of it, but just <laughs> vomiting, you know, because yeah. it's so much sugar. So they started to realise that that's not what people want. So they you know you're using things like teas and kombuchas and everything so the 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 palate is like really sort of starting to lean savory so they're kind of you know there's things like um you know they're doing that there's a there's a there's a company called non capital n-o-n and he's an ex-sommelier he's an australian guy but ex-sommelier at noma and he got sick of the whole juice program so he's doing other things so he's making these non-alcoholic Wines, but making them out of sort of various different things. Like he's, they're sort of like a pet nat style. Oh, so pet nice. nat is the sort of like a natural kind of slightly carbonated wine, and um, so they're slightly carbonated, and they're doing things like um, salted raspberry and chamomile. <sighs> And things like that. So they're sort of like, you know, really delicious, you know, and um, it's sort of. And how, do they come in a wine bottle? They and do. They come in a wine bottle. Oh, really love. nice, nice packaging. You know, the whole thing looks really good. And there's sort of a lot of them, they're being served in, you know, high end restaurants and they're, they're not widely available, but there are, there are some really good things. So, mm. um, you know, and then you've got, there's another, there's a bar in Sydney called PS40 and they have put out, they're putting out a, a line of soda called PS Sodas and they're sort of things, they're, they're using a lot of um, native. Australian ingredients, so they've got a wattle cola oh, and um, a smoked lemonade, which you know, coming out of Sydney these days, not so hard. Mm-hmm. But uh, the bush, a bush tonic, and a, and a back, blackstrap ginger, things like that. So they're kind of they're they're looking at regular soft drink flavors, but then just adding an, an, another layer of um, flavor to them. So, and this is this is from your review yesterday of a bar. Mm. Uh, the cocktail menu has an ingredient list that includes fermented honeycomb mushrooms cabbage, clarified butter and olive oil. Yeah. Sounds delicious. 
doesn't it? <laughs> um, what does that taste like? Well, the thing is that a lot of it, like sort of say the cabbage ingredient is the part that they're using to, they're using the cabbage because it's a good um, ferment. So that they, so if they're, because a lot of the, because it's, this is not all about, um, no alcohol, like a lot of it's low alcohol. So they're sort of doing drinks like they. So that that bar birdie does um, drinks called ferments, which are sort of like a cross between a cocktail and a wine, and they're mostly made with fruit. And so they're using um, they're using the cabbage to start the ferment. So you know, and their 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 levels of alcohol can be somewhere between five and ten percent. So you can ask about those sort of things as well. What about uh, if you if a kid was in a restaurant? Like, at what point do mocktails become so supreme and sophisticated and excellent that they transcend the pun on cocktail and become a standalone excellent drink in and of themselves. Absolutely. I think that, like, you know, because mocktail is just another cringy word. You know, it's mm-hmm. sort of like it's just kind of like and, it's, and it, it sounds like you're not really taking it seriously, whereas these are like they're, they're serious drinks. You know, there's people like a lot of restaurants in Melbourne now are sort of, you know, they're, they're making the mocktails, but they're also making their own sodas. And they're like, you know, and there's there's a lot of technique going into them. Like they use a lot of kitchen techniques. There's like sous vide things and smoking things and preserving things and dehydrating wow. things. Mm. So they're kind of really sort of... Of concentrating on getting these beautiful flavours. I used to just put orange and cranberry juice together and top it up with lemonade. That's pretty sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. mm. Uh, I you feel can. like it must change the way that you consume too because I'm a really fast drinker. Yes. And so if I'm going to pay however much for this beautiful fermented drink, I've got to learn you got to learn to just Yeah. Yes, yeah, settle, settle down. Yeah. Sip don't gulp is a good is a good uh, um, mantra to have. Yes. Sip don't gulp. So there are ingredients in these drinks that promote that like that slow you down like did you know non-alcoholic drinks do they go overboard making it extra bitter or tart or tart and bitter are the sort of the flavor profiles that are coming out of most of them i think so you know they you do sort of tend to it is more like drinking uh like like a glass of wine i think it's sort of those mm. sort of things and so they're there and a lot of them are good good with food as well so they've got those kind of savory characteristics in them so you want to sort of sip it through eating you know whatever you're eating at the time yeah so um just quickly it, would it be how out of line would it be to get a mocktail and then like you know Get a shot of something on the side. It's kind of my favourite thing to do. <laughs> Can you just whack some vodka in there? That'd be great. You know, so, you know, yeah, because that just sounds like altogether those ingredients sound great, but they would be just a little bit better. With, you know. Are you on this note, just because it's festive season, are you um, alcoholic eggnog, non, non-alcoholic eggnog? Always the alcoholic oh, eggnog. Okay, there you know, we go. just got to, you know. Just just get into it. Yep. Mm. Michael, we'll, we'll see you Friday morning. Yeah, great. I'll Brilliant. See you then. Thank you. Okay, bye. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Uh, you've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. Uh, happy Christmas and Happy New Year. Happy holidays. See you in 2020. See you in 2020.